hearers of the word, and you'll hear three ways to do the doing. And you can listen to that sermon online as well as the rest of the James series. So two verses for you uh, this morning from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray your spirit to move among us, that we together would arrive at the meaning of this sacred, inspired, inerrant text, and so apply it in our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. During college one summer, I worked at a furniture factory. Uh, this was not a difficult job, or it was a difficult job, so please think more of me uh, as I tell this story. So our job at this furniture factory was making high-end office furniture, and the way that we did this in my little station in the warehouse there, we cut particle board to rough size and then applied wood veneer onto the particle board. And we did this with, a, with uh, applying glue, and then you would put it through a heat press, and the pieces of veneer were so thin, they were about maybe an eighth of an inch thick, they were so thin that if you held the veneer incorrectly, it would just crack in half, and you'd ruin uh, the piece of veneer. So here's what I'm getting at. We would make these high-end maple, cherry, walnut desks and office furniture and conference room tables, and they were an eighth-inch hardwood, and the rest was particle board, sawdust and glue, and probably a lot of formaldehyde. And as we come to James 1, 26 and 27, we see that there is a diagnostic, a diagnostic or a sign whether or not you have true faith. James is rehearsing for us evidence of true faith. Now hear me out. People can intellectually give assent to Jesus Christ. He was a historical figure. He died a death. This is intellectual assent to maybe some of the facts of the gospel or what's recorded to us uh, in the Gospels. But this is not belief and faith and trust that is expressed. That is something different. And what James is getting at is if you have the genuine article, if you have real authentic faith, it works itself out in some very specific behaviors, in some ways of living that flow from and are a result of what we believe. So the question before us is, how should, a Christ, how should Christianity, how should our faith manifest it in our lives? And that's what we're going to look at, three ways. And the first, to me, is an unusual way. It's in verse 26, and that is to bridle the tongue. And we're going to talk about why that's the case. But we have to back up 
James writes, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, here's the thing. He uses the word religious and religion here in this text. Typically, we have been told that Christianity is not a religion. Has anybody been told this? Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. Have you been told that? Anyone? All right, there we go. That's really a false dichotomy because religion and relationship in the way that James is using the word religion is not meant to be contradictory. Here's what I'm getting at. People will say Christianity is not dead orthodoxy. It is a relationship. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Here's the thing, James does not mean by using the word religious here, dead orthodoxy, he means your devotion, your passion, your piety. This is what he's communicating by using the word religion. How the faith is expressed and linked to the living part, the doing part. That's what he's getting at. So here's my point, religion isn't a bad term. The way James is using it, he's speaking about how your faith works itself out in devotion and piety to the glory of God. This is what he means. So I have to to do that because many of us are told religion and relationship are in contrast to each other, and that simply isn't the case biblically. So if anybody tells you that, tell them they're wrong and tell them I said so. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. Oh, that's a strange way to lead, isn't it? But it makes perfect sense if you think about it for a moment. The words that we say, whether we like it or not, the words that we say reflect internal realities in our heart. What we say is an indicator of where our heart is at. So on Friday, I went to... uh, get oil changed in the car. And what did, what did they do? After they changed the oil, they pull out the dipstick and they show you the dipstick and they show you the level of the oil and that everything is okay. And you probably have experience with this. I mean, if you check the condition of the oil, especially if you have small engines or dirt bikes, which are maintenance nightmares, Sometimes when you change the oil, there'll be shavings in there. There'll be some indication of what's going on inside the engine where you can't see. Likewise, our words reflect the condition of our heart and where our faith is. That's the point that James is making here. So to bridle the tongue is to control it. To bridle the tongue is to guide the tongue, understanding that with discernment, the words that we say can be of tremendous good and encouragement for others. And James will return to the issue of the tongue in chapter 3, and that's probably how we know this must have been an issue in the ancient world. It must have been an issue in the groups of churches uh, that James was writing to. Uh, Jesus uh, says in Matthew 15, 11, Matthew 15, 11, uh, 
uh, he says this, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. That's true, isn't it? That the words that we say show the condition of our heart and can be used as a diagnostic of whether or not we truly have faith and believe. So, bridling the tongue, controlling, guiding it, showing our devotion uh, by what we say and that we belong to Jesus because of the things that we say is one of the signs of true faith. Notice here, uh, but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless. Again, the religion here, their piety, their devotion, their commitment is worthless. If they won't control their tongue, they deceive themselves. This is the second time James used this language of deceiving yourselves. Verse 22 was the other one. But it is possible then to deceive yourself and think you are a Christian and you're actually not one. And the tongue, what we say, is an indicator, is a diagnostic, is checking the dipstick on where our life is. Now, when the devil invented social media, when the devil invented social media, what he did was he gave a platform, a global platform for intemperate, immodest, hurtful, abusive speech. Social media, for all the good that it does, and if somebody has anything good, please let me know, but social media gives a platform in order to broadcast that which is not a display of bridling the tongue intemperate, unwise speech, hurtful speech, and then through the magic of the internet, it's recorded forever. This unbridled platform that we have must be used with, with wisdom. And I've got a, three applications for you, uh, whether or not you're on social media. But when you, let, let me begin with this, when you post, whether you like it or not, you're taking out all of us there with you. Mm-hmm, you're doing that. Here's why, you're affiliated with this church. You are affiliated with this church, therefore if you post something, I'm saying even if you like something that you shouldn't really be liking, you're taking all of us there with you because you are associated with this church, whether you like it or not. And so it affects the reputation of this church and all of us together collectively if you post something, if you like something that doesn't reflect bridling the tongue. Now, you might think, I'm going to do it anyway. Who cares about the reputation of the church? And that's fine. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you represent Jesus Christ. You are the only gospel some people will read. You're the only gospel that some people will relate to and engage with. So if you like or post things that don't represent Christ well, His gentleness, 
His truth, His mercy, His compassion for sinners, then you are sullying the very name of our Savior. And so, be careful what you post. And then use, here's second application, use wisdom and discernment in what you post, absolutely, and in what you say, and in what you say. You know, my mom would tell me I was, I had a big mouth growing up. If you think I have a big mouth now, I had a bigger mouth growing up. And she would tell me, as probably you were told when you were growing up, if you can't, you complete the phrase, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. There's a problem with that. Because you're saying it in your heart, and you need to repent of that. And so, yes, it is good to bridle your tongue and in that moment not say what you're thinking, but it is better to take that to the Lord and say, Lord, here's what I'm thinking. Thank you for sparing me from my sin and stupidity and actually saying it. Now work on my heart so that I wouldn't harbor that. So wisdom and discernment. Third application. Third application. This comes from Russell Moore. I just finished reading his book, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. And he uses the term conflict entrepreneurial. Conflict entrepreneurs. And here's, here's the other application. Don't tune in to conflict entrepreneurs. These are people who stir up uh, conflict. These are people who make their living by pointing out what is unpleasant and bad in the world and focusing on it. They are podcasters. They're YouTubers. They're on uh, the news. Conflict op- entrepreneurs make their money, make their living by sort of stoking the fires of discontent and conflict. And my encouragement to you is, if you tune into them, you become like them. You become like them in your relating style. And, and here's the thing. I think there's enough upsetting. Yes, it's an election year. I think there is enough upsetting in the world without adding to it. It is a non-redemptive way of relating. Jesus just didn't sit in heaven and criticize, analyze, and scrutinize what is wrong with the world. He actually did something about it. And so part of bridling your tongue is not soaking and saturating in this conflict entrepreneur world where we get fired up about non-redemptive things. So there's some encouragement for you. Bridle your tongue and how to apply it. The next point here, now this makes maybe, and I hope it makes sense to you now to see it's a diagnostic of where our faith is. That's why James leads with bridling the tongue. Another one, another sign, how faith And true devotion to God is manifested. The second one here is visiting orphans and widows. This is in the first part of verse 27. 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. I mean, he lays it out here. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The reason why James says this is because orphans and widows, of course, had no economic or social power in the ancient world. There was no stopgap system from the government to help support an orphan or a widow. They had absolutely nothing and were desperate for help. They had no economic means to support themselves, and they were vulnerable. And here, what James is saying, to visit them is to be with them in the midst of their distress or their affliction or their pain. Again, not not just standing apart and scrutinizing, analyzing, and criticizing, but going and visiting, being with those people to show love and serve them in the midst of their affliction, which is distress, trouble, suffering, pain, to spend time with uh, them. And who better to visit than a Christian who, like an orphan or a widow in the ancient world, has, knows a place where they are spiritually bankrupt and without hope save for God's mercy. Who better than a Christian to visit an orphan or a widow? Who better? And so James invites the ancient church and by extension us into these kinds of relationships. Now, you might think for a moment, well, I'd really like to visit an orphan or a widow, but I wouldn't know what to say. Well, see, point number one, you don't have to say anything. If we're bridling our tongue, then that also means that we don't have to enter into a painful situation and fix it. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to say anything. We can just be with those who are in pain as a means of communicating the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. This is showing compassion on those who are in in pain. And I think we could make a bigger application here. Orphans, widows, anyone who is in pain or suffering, that we move towards those people instead of away. Now, sometimes you might, your first instinct might be you, you pull up, you know, right? Every corner in San Antonio has somebody panhandling practically. And, and you might look at a person like that, and I realize they can probably make more money than I do doing that. I'm very cynical. I'm sorry about that. But we would look at a person like that, and we respond with cynicism like I do. They're not really, they're, they're just moonlighting. They're really a lawyer on Wall Street. And then the second, second one is we blame them for their situation. We say, "Mm, if you only worked harder, you wouldn't be in this. We blame the poor instead of having compassion and seeing how God can work in their life through our mercy and compassion in order to 
not necessarily fix their situation or save them, but communicate the mercy of God to them as it has been committed, uh, communicated to us in Christ. Now, when a mass casualty incident happens, mass casualty incident, so I'm using kind of G-rated language here. When that happens, I noticed something um, a couple years ago. It was, either, it, it, it was either with what happened in El Paso or in Florida, but it, but it came out at Uvalde. I did, did see it. So I don't know when this trend started, and you probably have noticed it too. Mass casualty incident happens, and people, especially leaders in our, in our country, will say, I'm sending thoughts and prayers. Have you... You've seen that kind of um, language used. And it was the first time I've noticed, really, uh, with Uvalde, so I don't know when it started, or Uvalde, um, people saying, we don't want your thoughts and prayers. And they, they would do this in very sort of punishing, pejorative ways of communicating. We don't want your thoughts and prayers. And certainly we would understand in the, in the pain of a community that's affected that way, there's a longing for action in st- and, and thoughts and prayers sounds like inaction. So we, so we can understand that. Now, it's important to understand as well that thoughts and prayers is a way of communicating compassion when I think of this situation, I'm going to think compassionate thoughts about those who have been affected by it. So I think it is a legitimate expression, but it's especially legitimate because we need to pray. We need to pray. And the denial of the supernatural by denying prayer is itself, and we understand it's, it's fueled out of anger we can, we can grasp that, but it is, it is a satanic impulse that says we will refuse the Almighty. And if we believe in a sovereign God, and I hope that we do, and nothing escapes His notice, and He is in control of what seems like an out-of-control universe and world, what better thing to do than to go to the one who is powerful and to ask him for good things. What better response could we, could we have? So I do encourage not a rejection of prayer, which is both satanic and secular, and a worldly impulse. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should think compassionate thoughts and caring thoughts about those types of mass casualty incident situations. But yes, we should visit. We should visit. Maybe the orphans and widows and those who are really, in affliction, really afflicted in our own time may also be those who are the victims of crime or the survivors of terrible incidents in our world. And we should compassionately go. We should compassionately go. Now, I understand, you know, mass casualty incident happens. Authorities, they don't want you there. I get that. But we all have people in our life who are affected 
by what happens maybe outside this community that's painful, and you can go to them, and you can sit with them. I mean, after all, Jesus commands us, go and make disciples. And we do that best when we actually do the going, and we visit, and we talk. And it can seem very inefficient to talk and to listen to someone's pain, but it lifts the spirit certainly to be with people in the midst of their pain and not apathetic to it or ignoring it. And so that's why James centers here on visiting orphans and widows as a sign of true faith. Now, another sign of the genuine article here. Last point, we've done bridle the tongue. We've done visit orphans and widows in their distress. And we wrap up with this keep oneself unstained from the world. And keep here is used, uh, the language here is for guarding. In other words, to guard oneself from the world, to carefully conduct yourself in all your activities to prevent the world from coming in and colonizing your thoughts your priorities, your goals, your values, your practices. We are called to be salt and light. We are not called to be indistinguishable from the world. Uh, One commentator describes the world this way. This is Donald Burdick in his James commentary. He defines the world this way. It describes the total, I'm quoting here, describes the, I believe in citing our sources, describes the total system of evil that pervades every sphere of human existence and is set in opposition to God and His righteousness. I'll read that one more time to you. The world describes the total system of evil that pervades every sphere of human existence and is set in opposition to God and His righteousness. And here's the deal. The world is a system. It is a system of goals, values, priorities, actions, um, and practices. And what James is saying here is that the faith preserves us and keeps us from being colonized by a world that would take over all of those things from us, and it is so pervasive that we wouldn't even be any different than the world. And so we have to go the other way. We have to go the other way when it comes to the world and its ways of staining us and affecting us. When we were living a couple houses ago, uh, when we were living in another state, I was taking this supplement that sort of they advertised it as uh, preventing colds. And you would drop in this Alka-Seltzer-like tablet into water, and it would kind of fizz up. And one morning, I had set it on the, on the fireplace, and I, I spilled some of it. I spilled some of it. And, uh, man, I could not get it out. It had some kind of red number 40 dye or something like that. 
So from then on, it looked like somebody had bled right there in front of our fireplace. And no amount of scrubbing would take this stain out. No amount of carpet cleaners or homeopathic whatevers would help. The carpet was ruined in that spot. So when we went to sell the home, we had to do something because it looked like a crime had been committed uh, or somebody really got hurt. And so what, here, here's what we did. It was right in front of the fireplace. We added tile in front of the fireplace. There was no way to fix the carpet. It had to be replaced and made new. And the reality of the gospel and the power of the gospel is this. In Christ, Christians are made new. No matter how much the world has influenced you, stained you, changed your priorities, goals, values, or practices, Jesus can and does through the power of the gospel, through the power of his cross, through the power of his empty tomb. He makes us, those of us who have faith, into a new creation. He does the ultimate soul renovation project. And this is spoken about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so if you've been stained by the world, however you would define that, the good news of the gospel is this, Christ can make you new. He'll pull up that old stained carpet and he'll make you and your soul new by faith alone. And so there you have the genuine article. How do I know if I'm really a Christian? How do I know if this faith business has taken root in my heart? It starts with bridling the tongue. It moves to visiting widows and orphans and then to keep oneself unstained from the world that we would exemplify and manifest the genuine article, our faith, in the ways that we live for Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for these instructions you have given us. And we pray indeed, wherever we need to change how we talk, wherever we need to change how we conduct ourselves, that you would do it. We thank you for the challenge of James to be on the lookout for those who are in pain or distress or affliction. And we pray that we as a church would continue to live out kingdom priorities rather than the world's way. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.